like to talk tonight about the state of doubt. I had about five people last week ask me to talk about doubt, so I I said, okay, I was thinking about talking about something else, but I'll talk about doubt instead. And just as I was walking in here, I thought, well, probably none of the five is experiencing any doubt anymore. You know, and they probably would have preferred another topic. But I am sure it will come back, so even if it's gone, it's just one of those things. Doubt, as I'm sure has been talked about before, is defined as a state of indecision. It's the state when our minds run all over the place, considering possibilities, looking for answers, trying to figure things out. It's often in the texts compared to a person who's standing at a fork in the road and just not knowing which way to turn. It's the same feeling as a person who has just discovered that he or she is lost without an orientation to guide them. Some teachers, some texts compare doubt to walking into a dark room so that you're filled with uncertainty and even with dread as you get more and more agitated. You know, what will happen if I take a step to the right? Maybe that'll be a big mistake. What if I go just slightly to the left? I might trip. Something bad might happen. And what's going to be just on the, over, on the other side of, of this next step? What am I going to find there? I don't know. It might be bad. Because we've lost our, our, fra- our framework, our sense of certainty. We feel there's nothing to guide us. We just don't know where we are. It reminded me of this time a few years ago. I'd gone to Cambridge to do a workshop that was being led by an old friend of mine from India, a woman who at one point had been a a nun in the Tibetan tradition. And she and I were actually staying in the same house for the workshop. And the end of Saturday, we left the place she was teaching together just to take a walk and and catch up with each other. And we walked through this... uh, cemetery in Cambridge called the Mount Auburn Cemetery, which was really very big, and just wandering around talking about what life had been like 25 years before living in India when she was a nun, and even though I wasn't a nun, my life was really incredibly simple, as life there can be. We didn't have anything, we didn't own much, and we were both incredibly happy. So there we were, wandering through the cemetery, talking about our previous experience and also talking about days of old when mendicants and renunciates would just wander through India and Tibet, staying overnight in cemeteries and in forests, under trees, and living that kind of life. with No possessions, no bother, no incredible dismay when their computers weren't working right or their cell phones weren't connecting or their cars were breaking down. Just this very clean, austere, simple life. And there we were talking about the glory of our early lives and the glory of that kind of life, not paying attention to the fact that it was actually getting darker and darker. And just around the point, one of us was saying, wouldn't it be wonderful to be able to return even for a little while to that way of life? We realized that we were absolutely lost in this cemetery, and suddenly 
the prospect of spending the night in a cemetery with nothing, you know, didn't seem very appealing. It actually, it was kind of dreadful. The darkness deepened as we, we just kept walking. We had no idea where we were because, in fact, all the tombstones looked exactly alike in the cemetery. We had nothing to guide us. And we'd say to one another, like, did we pass the Carters already? Or, you know, like, is this new? Or how long ago? And which way were we going? We just walked around and around and around and around and for hours. And finally, it was quite dark. We got to the gate, and it was locked. We had to wait for a guard to come sometime later to let us out. And that reminded me of the state of doubt. You could talk about it as delusion too, but we'll talk about it as doubt. Not knowing where we're going, not knowing where we belong. If I make this turn, will it have a bad consequence? Maybe I better not move. I better just stay here. How long is it going to take me to undo a mistake Can I ever find my way back to a path that's going to lead me to freedom? And again, as with all these states that we talk about, it's not that doubt is somehow bad or wrong or contemptible, but it's imperative, I think, that we can honestly look at how this state functions, what its nature is, how what kind of role it plays in our minds and what kind of role it plays in our practice and in our lives. Because if we're nurturing and cultivating and holding on to something that in fact causes us suffering. And we can get insight, we can perceive its suffering nature, then we can let go. We can find another way of being, if nothing else, than out of compassion for ourselves. So doubt is indecision. It's also not being able to commit, not being able to take a risk. One of the most significant and detrimental aspects of doubt in terms of practice is that it often means when we are lost in doubt that we're not able to put ourselves in a a position of listening, a situation of, of truly listening. Or we're not willing to take a risk and try something out, to see something unfold, to see for ourselves if it's right or not, if it's true or not. Doubt, in some ways, is like demanding to know all the answers immediately without being willing to go through a process for those answers to emerge out of our own experience, to have them, the answers emerge intuitively. So when we're lost in doubt, we're stuck. And the sad thing about it is that even though it seems to promise wisdom, it seems to, to be an articulation of wisdom. In fact, it prevents us from seeing the truth for ourselves because it keeps us separated from any kind of actual discovery. One of the great periods of doubt in my own practice was very early on. I've talked about this a lot before. I didn't really have doubts about the correctness of the Dharma, the fact that it was... It was a truthful teaching. Right from the beginning, I felt a, a tremendous sense of its rightness, of its, of its truthfulness. But I had doubts about other things. I had certainly a lot of doubts about my own capacity to practice. And I had doubts after some time about which particular practice to do. 
my first introduction to to practice was in a Burmese tradition, similar to this, which I did for some months living in India. And then after those months, somebody showed me a picture of a Tibetan teacher, a Tibetan lama. And I was so captivated and intrigued by his face that I thought, well, I'll go to the other end of India, into the mountains, and I'll, I'll see what he's doing. I'll see what he's teaching. And so I went. And it was, in fact, a very tra- different tradition and different lineage, a different way of practice. I was quite moved and drawn to both. So, in effect, I did nothing. I used to sit down to meditate, and then I would just think. I would think, well, should I do this one or should I do that one? Or maybe this one's faster, or maybe that one's better. Or, you know, I'm not really sure about the people who do that one. They're really kind of not very together, if that's the fruit of that practice. But then again, I know them better than these people, and maybe these people are just as bad off, but I don't know them as well. And just, <laughs> you know, and so it went. Rather than actually doing a practice, I was just lost in thought about which might be the better practice to do and was therefore unable to do either one. And in a way, what was almost worse was that whenever I was with my Burmese teachers, instead of asking them about Burmese tradition, which they had spent their entire lives devoted to and studying and exploring, I would ask my Burmese teachers what they thought about Tibetan practice, which in effect they really didn't know anything about. There had been a great historical uh, divide. And whenever I was with my Tibetan teachers, I would insist on asking them whatever they, what they thought about Burmese practice, Burmese tradition, which they really knew very little about, in fact, for the same reasons. And so I wasn't really learning anything from my practice because I wasn't really practicing, and I wasn't learning anything from my teachers because instead of asking them what they knew the most about, I was asking them what they knew the least about. And this just went on and on, this great whirlpool of doubt, until came a moment when I just had to say to myself, just do something. Just do one. It doesn't have to be a lifetime commitment. It doesn't even have to be the right decision. Just create a structure where you can actually put something into practice. And this, of course, was the great injunction of the Buddha when he said, very famously, don't believe anything. And don't believe anything just because I say it, because an elder says it, because it's written in a great text. See for yourself if it's true. He said, put it into practice and see if it leads this practice to the decrease of greed, hatred, and delusion in the mind. If that's what you find, then you can trust it. He said, put it into practice. And if you find that it leads to, that practice leads to the the expansion of factors like wisdom and compassion and love, then you can trust it. He said, put it into practice. And if you find that there is a kind of wisdom that opens up in your life that is different, so he used the example of staring at a wall and having the wall break open. If you have that kind of openness of perspective, he said, you can trust it. And there's a whole long list of things he said in this context, but they all began with put it into practice, which is really making the truth our own, which is what we need to do. So that's what I came to. Even if it was the wrong decision, I had to do something to get out of the the stuckness, the stuckness in a way that 
wasn't allowing the truth to be revealed. And that's why we have to step away from doubt in order to have a process unfold, because the doubt has made us step away from the process that we need to be engaged in. All of the hindrances, grasping and aversion and sleepiness and restlessness and doubt, will arise in our experience. If it's not one thing, to quote Joseph Goldstein, it's another, you know. (laughs) Or sometimes there are some intriguing combinations of them all. But the, the particular nature of doubt can make it kind of difficult to be with because it seems so believable. If we're filled with greed or grasping, filled with anger, sleepiness, restlessness, it's fairly easy with a careful degree of mindfulness to perceive its suffering nature. That hollowness and the aching of desire and the burning of aversion, the, the heaviness, the sluggishness of sleepiness, the wildness of restlessness, we can perceive how, how difficult it is really if we're lost in those states to, to have clarity, to have composure, to have peace. But doubt seems so intelligent. It just seems so correct. Like it's really a path that will that will lead us onward, like being lost in a cemetery and finding a way. Sometimes when we experience doubt, it's it's a kind of disconnection. As I said, it's it's a way that the the urge to disconnect, to not be present to be lost in some way, in a a safe little cocoon far away. It's a way that that urge gets expressed. It just takes a very beguiling form, masquerading as intelligence. I once had a friend who, who got quite sick. He was normally a very healthy person. He came down with some kind of pneumonia, and he was very sick. And then he, and he almost died, but then he got better. And one day he called my house and left a message for me. And before I could call him back, the phone rang, and it happened to be a mutual friend of ours. So I said, well, you know, I can't really talk very long because I have to get off the phone and, and call this other friend. And the person on the phone said, well, did you hear that he almost died? And I said, yeah, I did, and, you know, I, I really should call him. And then we hung up. But before I could call, strangely enough, the phone rang again. And it was another mutual friend. And I said, well, you know, I can't really talk long because I have to call this other person. And she said, well, did you hear that he almost died? And I said, yeah, I did. And then finally got off the phone and called my friend. And I said, I think I'm going to refer to you now as he who almost died. And he said, well, it's better than saying he who almost lived. So I said, well, how do you mean that? Do you mean that you escaped with your life after almost dying, but that, you know, you could see it as he was just about to survive and then he didn't. And he said, no, no, I mean it in the sense of how in a lifetime we can almost live 
and then, in fact, of course, we do die. In some ways, that's how I see the function of doubt. It's that almost living. We separate ourselves enough from what's happening, and we are encapsulated by that doubt so that we're not connecting. It's a kind of energetic collapse. It's a way that our minds are unable to focus, unable to connect, because we're just lost in considering all of these options rather than actually putting something into practice. Sometimes when we experience doubt, there's almost a kind of frivolity to it. It can be a form of great indulgence. The Buddha talked about this in the very famous image of somebody who had been shot with a poison arrow. Somebody runs up to the person and tries to pull the arrow out to save them, and the man who's been shot says, well, wait a minute, you know, before you pull it out, I'd like to know who shot it and where they were from and, you know, what's the arrow made from and what's the poison perhaps that's on the tip and what's the chemical composition of that and where they get it and on and on. And the Buddha said before the man's questions would have run out, he would have died. So what he's saying is that the path he's teaching, the path to liberation, comes back to that rather stark statement, which I quoted before, of I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. You know, what are we really questioning? Are we questioning our attachment, our hatred, the ways we hold on, the depth of our suffering, our confusion, our fear of loving kindness. What are we questioning? Are we questioning that? Or are we questioning something in a way that is really much more frivolous? That's another thing to look at. There's so much in the teachings about that austere statement. I teach one thing and one thing only, that is suffering and the end of suffering. There are an awful lot of our questions that are more like that guy who's been shot with a poison arrow. But that doesn't mean questioning is bad. You know, questioning is very, very good. Questioning is essential for faith to be a verified faith and not just kind of intoxication. It's essential to know how to question for the understanding that comes from, <clears throat> from a spiritual teaching to be what's called a self-witness truth. We have to be able to see the truth for ourselves, which means questioning and wondering and, and trying to understand. But that kind of questioning, the positive kind of questioning, is the same as put it into practice. It's insisting on knowing for oneself, feeling you have the right to understand for yourself, you have the capacity to understand for yourself, and an open-heartedness in being willing to explore That's very different than the kind of questioning that is really just doubt, or skeptical doubt, as they call it, which closes us off, that removes us from active engagement in an experience that has us practicing almost living rather than taking a risk and coming forward and seeing what actually is true. You know, they say in the legend of the Buddha's enlightenment that one of the first people to see him, you know, he got enlightened, spent 49 days under in the area of the, the tree he'd been sitting under when he became enlightened, and then got up to walk to what is now Sarnath, where he ended up giving his first teaching, his first um, sermon. 
And it said that in leaving Bodhgaya, the area of the tree, and going to Sarnath, the first person he came upon was a man who said, well, who are you? And as one would imagine, you know, it said that the Buddha was quite strikingly radiant. I mean, here he is just 49 days after his enlightenment. You know, he was, he was just immensely radiant and, and beautiful. And so the man was struck by that, and he said, well, who are you? Are you a, a deva, a celestial being? Are you a human being? Who are you? And the Buddha is said to have responded by saying, well, I'm an awakened one. And the man said, well, maybe. And he walked away. <laughs> you know, you think, well, couldn't he have stayed, you know, and asked a few questions and, you know, tried to see if maybe he could get to be, you know, as radiant, as enlightened too. But that kind of closed-offness, well, yeah, maybe, you know, is more in the, the nature of that skeptical doubt, which can border on cynicism. That's not really an open mind of questioning. We need to question, we need to wonder, we need to demand a lot of a process, but all in the, in the context of trying to understand for ourselves, because that's what's essential. Sometimes what comes up most strongly is doubt, in ourselves. And of course, there's that most famous image of the Buddha, then the Bodhisattva, on the eve of his enlightenment under the tree when he's attacked by Mara, who's known, the legendary figure of Mara is known as the killer of virtue and the killer of life, who tries to dissuade the Bodhisattva from his efforts toward enlightenment and attacks with all these different forces, lust and desire and fear and so on, trying to make him give up and go away. But it's said that throughout that, the the Bodhisattva sits serene and unmoved by all of these attacks. So then Mara attacks in his final way, which is basically through the force of self-doubt. And he more or less says to him, who do you think you are? You know, to think that you deserve that kind of aspiration, that you think you can get enlightened. Who do you think you are? And said that in response, the Bodhisattva reaches his hand over his knee in the very famous mudra depicted in the statue behind me and in so many statues. He reaches his hand over his knee and touches the earth, asking the earth itself to bear witness to his right to have that kind of aspiration, that yes, he has the right to want to be enlightened, to think that he can be. And so that the earth, in bearing witness to the lifetimes, the many lifetimes in which the Bodhisattva practiced loving kindness and, and equanimity and generosity and morality and so on, the earth shook. Mara was vanquished and went away, and that was the last um, challenge. So the Bodhisattva sat through the night and uh, watching his breath, it said, and then became enlightened at dawn with the first morning star. We can hear that voice in us pretty regularly, sometimes very regularly, sometimes frequently, sometimes constantly. Who do you think you are to think that you can break free of the mechanical nature of your life? Who do you think you are to think that you can develop in these qualities to cultivate the good 
who do you think you are that you can cultivate wisdom, you can cultivate compassion, and so it goes. Sometimes it's intense like that. Sometimes it's much more subtle. I can remember when I started doing metta practice intensively for the first time. It was 1985, and I'd gone to Burma to practice with Upandita. So that meant it was almost 15 years after I had first begun doing Vipassana practice. I'd, I'd always done metta, you know, for an hour at the end of the retreat or here and there for a few minutes. So it had been a part of my my life. But this was the first time I ever did it as a a cultivated, intensive, structured, all-day-long practice. And I didn't have a clue what was happening. I just didn't know in a way, what I was doing. I didn't know what was a good experience, what was a mediocre experience, and what should be happening, what shouldn't be happening. And if I didn't have any feeling, I thought, well, I'm not doing it right. If I had feeling, I thought, well, this can't be real. I'm making it, I'm making it up. I'm making it happen. And apparently, in my interviews with Upandita, I would be presenting my experience with something of that tone in my voice, like, this isn't really happening, but maybe it's happening, or I'm not sure it's happening, or something like that. Not overtly through the words, but just somehow through the tone. And this went on for some time until finally he said to me, I believe this is happening to you. Why don't you believe this is happening to you? And in fact, we can believe what's happening to us because what's happening to us is not a personal thing. It's really an unfolding of a process that is universal. Otherwise, it's almost like saying, well, you know, the Dharma has worked for 2,500 years, but it's hit a wall with me, you know? It's like, (laughs) this isn't going to work. And really, it's all very impersonal. If you do this with the mind, that will follow. If you do that with the mind, this will follow. And to somehow feel we are separate and special and apart from what is really a very impersonal process is is a strange form of doubt. Confidence or faith in ourselves is very different from conceit, precisely because we're not talking about something exclusive, something that makes us so very special. We can have confidence and tremendous faith in what we're experiencing because it's not about us, actually. It's not special to us. It's like the Dharma unfolding through us. Sometimes when uh, I introduce a course and I talk about taking refuge in the Buddha, I say, well, you know, we take refuge in the Buddha because when we look at the Buddha, we're really looking at something about ourselves. And when we're looking at ourselves, it's not about just us, not just me. When we look at ourselves in that way, we're really looking at all beings. And so the taking refuge is, and the the whole teachings of the Buddha, in fact, in, in a complete sense, are like a transparency. You know, if we look at the Buddha, we're seeing ourselves. If we look at ourselves, we're seeing all of life. We're seeing all beings. And so... We don't hold on to kind of the specialness of our experience. Conceit is a very different state of mind than, than confidence in oneself. 
when the Bodhisattva touched the earth, the earth wasn't bearing the earth was bearing witness to the cultivation of those qualities of loving kindness and equanimity and so on, which had formed almost a kind of wave of moral force that had swept into that moment in time under the tree where he had a right to get enlightened. The earth wasn't shaking and bearing witness saying, wow, he's a great guy, you know, he's really different. It was, it was the force of those qualities. Conceit is really something very different. In fact, when I was sitting in the ever-so-famous 1984 retreat with Upandita here, as I mentioned before, he had this habit of teaching in a way that uh, he would repeat the same thing over and over and over and over again in interviews day after day until something would shift inside you and then he'd get on to something else. So there was one whole period when I was just getting to know him where I would go in and at that point I'd been practicing very devotedly for 14 years. And I would walk in to M101 and describe some experience I was having and he would look at me and he would say, well, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd think, I'm not a beginner. I've been practicing for 14 years. I'm not a beginner. But that was it. That was all he would say. It was, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd leave and then maybe the next day I'd come in and I would describe a completely different experience. And he would look at me and say, in the beginning it can be like that. And I think, I'm not a beginner. <laughs> I'm practicing for 14 years. And it was almost like this neon sign was going off in my brain, flashing 14, 14 to him. And I would leave and I'd come back in the third day and I'd describe something completely different from the first day and the second day. And he'd say, in the beginning it can be like that. And I'd go, I'm not a beginner. And I'd walk out and then come in. And it just kept going on and on and on and on until... I had the epiphany which I needed to have, which was, it's good to be a beginner, actually. It's good not to have all of those ideas of what should be happening and shouldn't be happening. It's good to have a freshness and an openness and a willingness to discover and a willingness to question. That's right. I am at the beginning, and I can take joy in being at the beginning. So, of course, the day that I kind of got that was the day he stopped saying that, and he went on to, like, could you note it or something. (laughs) something else. (laughs) There can be doubt in ourselves. There can be doubt in the process. There can be doubt in the teacher. There can be so many different kinds of doubt. Actually, back in that same course, uh, Joseph may have already said this in in some talk, but... um, He told Upandita during an interview that going to see him for an interview was like waiting in the waiting room of a dentist. It was like going to see a dentist with all that much trepidation and so on. And Upandita had this habit, which is actually very Asian, um, of mentioning somebody at night, not by name, but saying, you know, today a yogi came to me and he said, that waiting to see me for an interview was like waiting to go see the dentist. And I was sitting here in the back of the room, and I thought, who said that to him, you know? Not at all realizing it was Joseph, you know? Like, how could anybody say that to him? But as I'm sure you can tell from all of the stories, 
And Pandita was a very determined, strong, demanding teacher. And my personal mantra during that retreat was, the teacher is there to serve me, which in fact is true. That's what a teacher is for. That's what the, the Buddha, in fact, was for. And if there's going to be, if we're going to engage even temporarily with a teacher, there needs to be a real sense of honesty in that, in that relationship. It's not that one never has doubt or shouldn't ever have doubt. But you have to see what kind of questioning is it. You know, is it the kind of questioning that is really the determination to see the truth for yourself? Or is it the kind of questioning that just allows you to separate from your own process and not have to really do it? Sometimes we have that same kind of doubt about the method. But just as the teacher is there to serve us as a student, the Dharma is there to serve us as students. If we're lost in doubt, we are condemned to run around considering all of these different options. Should I do this or should I do that? You know, two minutes into a Vipassana sitting, it doesn't feel very good, so you think, oh, I'll switch to metta, and I'll feel better, you know, and then do that for two minutes, and that's not feeling the way you think it should be feeling, and then you think, oh, well, you know, what I really need is some compassion here, and so you switch to compassion, and you think, well, this isn't working, and it's a cop-out anyway, maybe I'd better go back to Vipassana, so you go back to Vipassana. It's not that it's wrong to switch methods, but in all cases, we wonder about the the motivation that is leading us to, to make that kind of switch. If we're just engaging in a kind of speculative doubt in order to not sit through the boredom or, or sit through the difficulty, it's not that helpful. Sometimes doubt is a form of a kind of false sophistication. There can be, especially in our culture, there can be a glorification of doubt we think that to, to be intelligent, especially to appear intelligent, we have to be cynical. We have to point out what's wrong. We can't be simple. And yet the methodology of practice, whatever practice it is, is very simple. You know, feel the breath. Feel your experience. Be with what's happening. Let go of distraction. Say a phrase. It's very simple. The range of experience in doing the practice can be enormous, but the actual instruction is pretty simple. And because of that simplicity, we can tend to be kind of scornful of it. We get lost in doubt about it rather than seeing how simple we can get. Now they say that when the Buddha himself taught, he often taught, so simply that even a seven-year-old could understand him. And it said, perhaps partly in consequence of that, that he had many fully enlightened seven-year-old disciples. So sometimes what I think we need to do is find that seven-year-old inside of us and not make everything so complicated all the time. Try to figure it all out. But just see what happens when we actually do it, when we put something into practice. And many times when we see our minds moving toward complexity rather than simplicity. I can remember when I was first doing the metta practice and one of the 
contemplations that's done in order to build a base for metta to arise is to look for the good in someone. It's not meant to be urging us to be deluded and stupid and foolish and try to pretend that everything's nice and and it's all wonderful and there are problems anywhere. But it's said that if we look for the good in someone, and that includes ourselves, then there is a base of connection from which we can then honestly and directly look at the difficult. It's not ignoring the difficult, but it, it creates a different, almost a different spatial relationship. It's like we're looking from a much closer perspective rather than with a, a vast sense of self and other, or us and them. So they say, look for the good in someone, which would be like a, a foundation for the experience of metta. So I heard that instruction, and my first thought was, I'm not going to do that. You know, that's what stupid people do. They just go around all day long looking for the good in everybody. And, you know, it's like, I thought, I don't even like people who do that. You know, I'm not going to do that. But as I usually tell the story, you know, there I was in Burma. I was far away from home. And the nature of the teacher-student relationship in a very traditional culture like that is not one where the teacher suggests you do something. You say, well, I don't feel like it. You know, I don't think it's a good idea. You actually do it. So I did it. And much to my surprise... It had a powerful effect on me in exactly the way it was supposed to. My fears did not come true, you know, that I was going to walk around in these days of of stupidity. But what happened was that I would often remember, sometimes with a person I found quite difficult, I'd remember one good thing about them, one incident. And if I started by focusing on that, there was just some spark of connection so that I could look at all of the difficulty but without such incredible rancor as though they were all bad and I was all good. Sometimes in Vipassana instruction, it's the same thing. I was talking about this to somebody today and I said when often the Buddha talked about mindfulness of the body and sometimes in very complex situations, like sitting in a meeting, you know, where things are being planned and you have to think and reason and imagine and listen and respond and so on, people say, well, what, what should you do? And, and I say, well, feel your feet against the ground. And I remember my first response to getting that kind of instruction. I thought, that's stupid, you know, like, this is a complicated situation. What's that going to do? Yeah. <laughs> But in trying it out, you know, coming forward and not just being lost in that doubtful, skeptical state, it was amazing. It actually did something. There's a way of our energy being centered in the body so that we're in touch with ourselves, what we really want, rather than getting lost in maybe some crazy momentum that's being generated in the room. So some very powerful things can happen just from feeling your feet against the ground. Sometimes doubt is a means of not trying because secretly we're sure we're going to fail. It's a little bit, I think, like a child who is looking at a a present they're not sure they're going to get, and then they say, well, didn't want it anyway. When we practice, there's a purpose to it. 
there's a goal. It doesn't have to feel like a far-off goal, like liberation, if that seems remote. But even to practice, to be free of grasping aversion and delusion, that takes some effort. It takes some commitment. That doesn't mean struggling or straining or trying to control our experience or manipulate our experience. It does mean a pretty heroic application of ourselves because we're, we're doing something very different. You know, you can't do that radical a, an activity and still try to play it safe and be removed and, and be far away from the process and not try. It's pretty radical to be making this kind of, of journey. It makes a difference for ourselves and it makes a difference for others. But when we want to just take a step away from that wholeheartedness, it's often doubt that will, will be the justification well, you know, it's not going to happen anyway, it doesn't matter, I don't know, it might not be right. And sometimes when I have that kind of experience, what I try to remember is the bodhisattva touching the earth in that moment. Because in a way, what he was saying, what the earth was saying, was that something very significant had already been done for the bodhisattva to get to that point in time. And just so, it's true for us. Something very significant has happened for us to be here in Barry, Massachusetts, making this kind of effort. A lot has already happened just to get one here. And we can continually touch the earth ourselves in reminder of the fact that, yeah, we also deserve to be liberated. This is also a possibility for us. You know that quotation from the Buddha um, where he says, cultivate the good. You can cultivate the good. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. He said, let go of that which is unwholesome or unskillful, you can let go of that which is unwholesome. If it were not possible, I would not ask you to do it. I think about that line. I think about touching the earth. It's all possible for us. And here, here is a path. So how to work with doubt, which will arise the first and most important point, of course, is to try to see doubt as doubt. Questioning is one thing. Skeptical doubt is another. As positive and important as questioning can be, we can feel the difference when we've left that terrain and we've moved into the, the kind of restlessness of constantly doubting. To see doubt as doubt is very difficult because it is so seductive. It seems the most reasonable thing in the world. 
But that is our effort, to begin to recognize what it's like when we step back, what it's like when we're lost in speculation, just like I had to, in trying to decide which practice to do. And also, I think we need to recognize that in that barrage of thoughts, which is often the manifestation of doubt, we need to recognize that some questions will never be answered on an intellectual level. There's some questions that will only be answered for ourselves, by ourselves, from an in-depth experience. So let's go to it, you know. Let's have that in-depth experience and do what we need to do moment by moment to get there. The Abhidhamma says that the proximate cause of the nearest arising condition of doubt is unwise attention. Therefore, the most direct tool for not being overcome by doubt is wise attention. That means if you want to know the truth of an experience, take a look at it. Look at the things that are keeping you from being present, that are keeping you from trying. Look at their nature. It said that the, the jumpiness, the agitation of doubt, leads to a lot of exhaustion. So at the same time that we are trying to recognize doubt as doubt, be able to note it, to see it without panicking, <laughs> without, without judging ourselves for it, but just to see it as it is. There are also sometimes ways of energetically balancing it. There's a way of being with our experience. I know we've talked about aiming and sustaining attention before. There's a way of being, our experience, being with our experience where we are looking to see how strongly we are connecting to what is. Sometimes this is called investigation, but I'm not sure investigation is really the, exactly the right term. It's a sense of really touching what is happening to us. Come close to it, whatever it is. Because doubt is going to try to pull us away and also be, have that jumpy quality. So we say, okay, let me just come close to it. Feel the warmth of the teacup in your hand. and Really feel it. Feel your hands in water. Feel your feet against the ground, but really feel them. Feel your breath. Not as though you were far, far away from it. But feel the breath from within the breath. Those are the simple energetic tools that actually help challenge the quality of doubt. Just get back to what's actually happening. A more literal sense of um, the word vichara in Pali, which is often translated as investigation, um, I think uh, in what was probably the cutest meditation instruction ever given was here in the hall in 1984 when Upandita was talking and the translation that was being used for that word vichara instead of investigation was rubbing. And so what the translator said in his instruction was, have your mind rub your belly, which I thought was very cute. So sometimes there's that deliberate sense of, okay, I am lost in space. All I'm doing is, is being lost in doubt. Really feel what's happening. Come back into that sense of rubbing your experience. Sometimes we just have to, in dealing with doubt, we just have to give things time. 
we have to let things settle down, not try to find the answers, not try to resolve a dilemma immediately. It's like the way in my early practice I was trying to decide between these great vehicles. It wasn't going to happen in an afternoon. Sometimes we have to set up a context in which we can allow the truth to unfold, to reveal itself. We need to be able to say, okay, for the next week, every time that uncertainty comes, I will deal with it in this way, whatever way we decide is, is appropriate, rather than trying to decide in each moment what we're going to do. I told someone the story um, the other day about this time we were teaching a three-month retreat here, and uh, somebody left and came back seven times because they would just get filled with that feeling of, of doubt about being here. So, and they'd leave instead of watching it. And it got kind of expensive and exhausting. You know, once he got to downtown Barry and he hitched a ride back, and once he got to Worcester and he called and said, can I come back? And once he got on a Greyhound bus and he got all the way to Kentucky... You know, and then he calls and said, I'd like to come back. I made a mistake, you know. And, and you start to think, well, you know, at some point you have to deal with it, you know, and kind of like say, for the next week, I am not leaving. <laughs> you know, I'm going to let the uncertainty and the not knowing and the fear and whatever it is come and go. It's just like I did when I said, just do something. What I actually said to myself in that moment of time in my practice, I said, I'm going to do one practice for six months. I said, because I just have to do something. I was desperate. I had to stop that kind of indulgence in the endless thinking. I said, I'm going to do one of them for six months. It doesn't matter which one, even. You know, just let me do something. And so I set a container. Okay, for six months, I'm just going to do a practice. And the doubts will come. Undoubtedly, they'll come. But I'll say, okay, here's my commitment. You know, I'm exploring this wholeheartedly. I'm going to see where it takes me. And mostly what we have to do is be able to look at the doubt and see that it's, more ultimate nature is not different than anything else. And that is changing, insubstantial, not something we chose to have happen, therefore a reflection of, of selflessness. It's got a certain transparency when we see it clearly. It's the, the flavor of emptiness. It reminds me of the story from the Tibetan tradition. So that's the good thing about studying more than one tradition because you get all these different stories from different texts. There's a story from the Tibetan tradition about a powerful bandit in India who after countless successful raids realized the terrible suffering that he had caused and yearned for a way to atone for his actions. So he went to visit a famous master and said to him, I'm a, a terrible sinner. I've done these terrible things and I'm I'm in torment. What's the way out? What can I do? The master looked at the bandit and he said, well, what are you good at? The bandit replied, nothing. I'm not good at anything. So the master said, nothing. You must be good at something. The bandit was quiet for a while considering and finally said, well, 
actually, there's one thing I have a talent for, and that's stealing. So the master was very pleased, and he said, good, that's exactly the skill you need now. Go to a quiet place and rob all your perceptions and steal all the stars and planets in the sky and dissolve them in the belly of emptiness, the all-encompassing space of the nature of mind. And as these stories all seem to end so happily, within 21 days the bandit became enlightened and became to be regarded as a great teacher. I've always felt that what that story is saying is that we have to use what we're good at. And if we're good at greed and we're good at anger and we're good at delusion, we're good at jealousy, we're good at fear, that's what we've got to use. If we're good at doubt, that's what we have to use. But using it means looking right into the heart of it, not being swayed by it, not being tossed around by it, and also not hating ourselves for it. It's being able to see that state clearly as another changing state. Being able to look at it carefully to see the nature that it shares with everything else. That it's coming and going, it's arising due to conditions. It does not reflect who we really are. Then we can take this doubt or greed or any of that long, long, long list of of difficult feelings and we don't have to feel hopeless and, and overcome and kind of pathetic about ourselves because of them, or angry at ourselves because of them. We can see them for what they are, and that will actually nourish our wisdom. And we can develop compassion from seeing their nature, to see how these difficult states come, to see them as painful rather than as wrong, to know that it's not personal, it's not just us, that this is part of the the human condition. And so even in the face of these very difficult experiences, by not getting lost in them, not fighting against them, but being with them in a mindful way, we can continually use them, use them all, to develop greater wisdom and compassion. So let's sit together for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.